Well, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. We are here to worship the Lord, and part of worship is actually hearing the Word of God preached. And we've been enjoying our journey through this wonderful Gospel. It's been packed full of uh, um, awesome stories and and narrative uh, about our Lord Jesus Christ. And today we come to the last testimony of John the Baptist. He had faded off the scene for a while, but here his, uh, we see his last testimony, and we see as Jesus' popularity grows that John's disciples become envious and jealous about that. And of course, John will say at the end of our text, he must increase, I must decrease. And that is really our theme of this, the message. That's what the theme of our, our the, the, the general message of our church, to exalt God. We want to see him exalted and not ourselves. And it's a beautiful thing that around Christmas time, we can seek, seek to do that. We can uh, encourage others that make much of Christ and little of us. You might have heard of Hudson Taylor, the great missionary. Um, he was visiting Australia uh, and preaching in a Presbyterian church. And the pastor used all these eloquent terms to introduce him, that he's great and he's wonderful and all of that. Well, Hudson Taylor got into the pulpit and he quietly said, Dear friends, I'm a little servant of an illustrious master, setting that straight. So in John's gospel, there's been a repeated point that Jesus fulfills and surpasses Judaism. Right, we saw that with Jesus turning the water to, to wine earlier in chapter 2. He provides a vastly superior cleansing, no, making those stone jars that are there for purification obsolete. Then we saw that he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple because they're buying and selling and, and all of that. And, and, and then he says that I'm the temple. Tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up again. Chapter 3, we see that Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of water and spirit and regeneration and proves that his death is the ultimate anti-type of that serpent, serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. And here today, we'll see that Jesus surpasses any baptism of repentance that John the Baptist, the legitimate forerunner of Christ, has come to do and makes purification by his own death. So let's read the text, John 3, verses 22 to 30. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Enon near Saline, because there was much water there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Well, John answered and said to them, A man can receive nothing unless it had been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride 
is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, indeed, uh, remove cares and distractions from our minds even now that we might understand and appreciate these very words of which I've just read from your word and, and understand them to the fullest. Lord, indeed, our desire is that Christ would increase even in our midst, in our hearts, in our minds, and even in this place. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we saw that crowning jewel of John 3.16. You might remember that. God so loved the world, it's a gemstone like, like none other. It, it's, it's a, you see the source of God's love, how he loved the world. He's the author of love. His love is active. His love is all-pervasive. And then the gift of his love was the giving of his own son to die on behalf of unworthy sinners. The purpose of God's love, that you would not perish but that you would have everlasting life. And of course, it goes on to uh, challenge what's your response to those things. And, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. So many reject this great and good news of God loving the world so much that he sent his Son. Today, as we come to our text, uh, you might have caught it, at the end of verse 29, um, when John um, says, so this joy of mine has been made full. You know, that, that's, that's a glorious thing. In other words, he's accomplished what he came to do. He, he's, he's, he was the forerunner. He, he says, I'm not the Christ, but he's the one, a voice crying in the wilderness saying, Christ is coming. And now Christ has come and his popularity is, 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 is full steam ahead so much that John's own disciples are jealous. But what John says is, my joy has been made full. You see, the key to joy and freedom from envy and jealousy is to acknowledge the sovereignty of God, which John does, and to magnify Christ. In so doing, you're, you will have joy. Many people think the reason I'm not happy is because I don't have enough zeros in my bank account. I don't have enough cars. I don't have motorcycles. I don't have the nice job. And, you know, and the, the world seeks to accumulate all these things, seeking to, to find happiness. And yet the people, even when they achieve that, are miserable most often if they're without God, right? And some even take their own lives. But the Word of God shows that the most joyful people are those that don't need a lot of material things, right? You think of, um, well, I mentioned before, you know, my trips to Africa, and you see people with so little in such humble dwellings, and yet they're so joyful, They've, you know, they're not distracted by all the, the tinsel of this world like we can be as Americans. You think of Jesus, a man of supreme joy. But what does it say? Um, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You think of Paul, even there in Philippians 1, in, in, a, in a cold, dingy prison, right, with stinky Roman guards around him, and yet that, that epistle of joy and rejoicing, the book of Philippians, even in the midst of, uh, on the receiving end of slander and other envious Christians. You think of John the Baptist, his clothing was not from Macy's or Nordstrom's, right? What was his clothing? 
a camel hair cloak. And you think of his diet, it's not Fleming's steakhouse, right? But it's locust and honey. And yet, he says with his own words, so this joy of mine has been made full. That's what he's come to do. That's the satisfaction that he has. And that's the theme of our service today. Seeing ourselves diminish and become lesser and lesser, but Jesus gaining the prominence. So we're going to look at this under four points. First of all, first, this could have been in the introduction, really the context. And that's the first three verses, 22 to 24. John and Jesus are ministering at the same time. It's something that the other Gospels don't mention, but it's something that there's this transition here. Secondly, we need to resist the temptation to envy and jealousy. Thirdly, all success and abilities come from heaven. And lastly, John rejoices over the fulfillment of his calling and the exaltation of Christ. So, long-winded points, I know. <laughs> so, first of all, we see that Jesus leaves Jerusalem after the Passover. You'll remember that he had come to, the, he went to the wedding, and then he went to the to temple, and that's, but he was going there for Passover, and everything earlier in chapter 3 with Nicodemus takes place in Jerusalem. But it says, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Well, Jerusalem's in Judea, so what does that mean? I think it means the, the urban downtown, say, of Jerusalem. They've gone out into the country where there's springs of water where baptism can take place. Now, nobody knows where Anon near Selene is. Uh, scholars will debate it, but it's probably somewhere in and the Judea, obviously the Judea area, but um, uh, possibly even Samaria. But this takes place prior to the Galilean ministry of Christ that we see in Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So this is that segment of time. This is one of those, those areas in the Gospel of John that don't occur anywhere else. And really those first several months of Christ's ministry, we have captured by John the evangelist for us. He specifically makes mention, notice in verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So we know that this is between Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, because that's when he just first sets out for ministry, but before John was in prison. And so there's a span of some months there where they're ministering in a what we might call a parallel ministry. We see Jesus here spending time with them. And it says of Jesus, he was spending time with them and baptizing. So the early instruction of these disciples, equipping them to be apostles, someday Jesus is rubbing shoulders with them. Secondly, Jesus and his disciples have an active ministry of baptism. If you missed last week, you missed a glorious baptism. It was glorious. Uh, with one of our young people making a solid profession of faith. Baptism is something that is wonderful. Now, look at verse 1 and 2 of the next chapter. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, so in other words, Jesus' popularity, but look at the, the parenthetical statement. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So anyway, we just, in other words, Jesus is overseeing this as his disciples or are baptizing. We can learn a lot about the doctrine of baptism just from this. 
Who are the candidates for even this baptism? Who are the candidates? Little babies? I had a granddaughter born yesterday. Uh, I don't think she's going to qualify for a while. It's, it's people that are conscious and they, they know that they have sinned against God. They express their repentance and faith. So the candidates are those that, that cognitively know, right, that they have sinned. The mode of baptism. Well, if you look here in the text, it says here, and this is glorious, there's so many other areas like this to prove immersion. John was also baptizing there because there was much water there. Actually, a transliteration of that anon is springs. And so it's a place where there's much water. Now, if you're just sprinkling people, you could just have a canteen. I mean, I could probably baptize about a thousand people with the canteen, right? You don't need much water, like rivers and springs of water. John Calvin, the Presbyterian, even admitted in his commentary from these words that we may infer that John and Christ administered baptism by placing the whole body beneath the water. The prepositions are really important too. There's so many other texts were down into the water and came out of the water where the whole sprinkling argument just goes out the window. So the word baptizo means immersion. It's like when you're doing dishes and you've got a plate and you put it all the way into the dishwasher or dishwater, right, to wash it and you pull it out. That's you've immersed, you've baptized a plate, okay, <laughs> if that makes sense. So, so this begs the question, what's the difference between the baptism of John the Baptist, a baptism of repentance, and even Jesus' disciples baptizing, but before he has gone to the cross and died for sins and rose from the dead. And then what we might call is um, Christian baptism. I think it's a growing understanding of, of what baptism is, right? John the Baptist, just as it says, was a baptism of repentance. We've sinned against God, and so a baptism of repentance the baptism that Jesus and his disciples were doing was, was that acknowledgement, but also that Messiah has come. Jesus Christ is on the scene. Christian baptism, as I introduced last week, gives that fuller understanding of our union with Christ, that we really died with him and, and we've risen to newness of life with him. So that's my uh, little sidetrack there on baptism. I think there's a lot right here that we can learn. Now, let's come to the crux of the story here. Second point, resist the temptation of jealousy and envy. The disciples of John did not really enjoy the success of Jesus and all the people coming to them. But first, look in verse 25. There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Now, the word here, uh, discussion, uh, can be translated a debate, an argument, um, a controversial discussion. So it's probably a heated discussion about purification. And how does, how does John's baptism fit with our purification, our Jewish purification laws? And so there was this debate, which probably led to what we see in verse 26. We can speculate all day long about what, it act, what the debate was actually about, but that's most likely what it was. And then in verse 26, and they came to John after seeing him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
behold, he is baptizing. He and his disciples are baptizing, and all are coming to him. You know, and so there's this, there's this um, a, a struggle within. Where were they? Were they? It could sound like a positive report. You could read it in that way. Behold, Rabbi, uh, he who you, of who you testified, he's baptizing, and everybody's going to him. But I don't think that's it from John's answer. Okay, and so it's more likely that they 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 come with a bitter resentment about the popularity of Jesus Christ. How twisted. How how wrong. You see, cooperation. Not competition is what we need in Christian service, right? This competitive spirit that is so alive and well in churches today, away with such, such craziness. We're not trying to build our own personal empires, trying to attract men unto ourselves, but we are trying to magnify Christ, amen? That's what we're about. Amy Carmichael said this, those who think too much of themselves... Don't think enough. Those who think too much of themselves are not thinking enough because they've come to the wrong conclusion by thinking too much for themselves. But the disciples cry out this here, uh, all are coming to him. It's, it's, it's like you could, the passage just pictures jealousy 101 with these men. Their, their words seem to carry the implied question, all are coming to him, and what are you going to do about it, John? Our popularity is waning. All are going to him. You see, jealousy doesn't have good eyesight, does it? John's disciples, even like the devil, would paint a different picture of the facts. And, it's, and even, even the, 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 the use of the word all there is not every single person in the world, right? Um, but it's, so it's a gross exaggeration. It's like saying all the scientists in the world believe in evolution. Is that true? No, of course not. But many do. <laughs> so envy and jealousy, uh, Brother read in Numbers 11, um, of these men <laughs> in the camp who had been given the Spirit of God and they're prophesying. And, 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 and there's a complaint brought to Moses. And he, he says in verse 29 of Numbers 11, but Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You see, brethren, envy is like a cancer that will eat you from the inside out. Envy has to be repudiated. Remember the book of Hester? Remember the guy Mordecai, right? And you remember the jealousy of Haman? And how, you know, his, his, his family says, oh, oh, he goes, every time I see him in the city court, it makes my blood boil. It's a paraphrase. And so what does his family say? Oh, build, build gallows, 50 cubits tall or feet tall, however much it is. And it says there in uh, chapter 5, verse 13, yet all of this that I have does not satisfy me because every time I see Mordecai the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. He was envious. He was jealous. Why is envy so dangerous? Well, it's a very subtle sin, isn't it? I can't look at you and you and say, oh, you're demonstrating envy. I can't see that at all. But it can be deadly. 
It can actually eat you up to the point to where you do something that you regret, right? There's certain crimes that are committed because of envy and jealousy. That's why we have to be careful not to allow these sins of the heart, we call them hidden sins of the heart, to fester because they will steal your joy and your contentment in the Lord. If you're constantly looking to others to compare yourselves with them, that's not the pathway to joy. Looking to others and not being content with the graces and gifts that God has given you. Or do you have a great gratitude for what God has given you? Really senseless controversy and loyalty to human leaders is a very foolish thing, and we see it alive and well in our day. It's a huge problem in our day. Just a couple points of application, even here, there's a competitive spirit among churches all around the country, even all around the world, but we see it even here in San Diego. There's a boasting of, I'm in the Rock Church's discipleship program, and I'm more godly than you kind of thing, right? And then you might have somebody else over here, hey, we're in the the free-loving Calvary Chapel movement, or I'm in the Southern Baptist movement, or I'm a Reformed Baptist even. You see that just has a smell of pride, Christians should be careful not to slander other churches. But I'll make one qualification. We do have a responsibility to warn if we believe that they're wolves leading a particular church. The Apostle Paul says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, 1 Corinthians 3, and you are not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? When one says, I am a Paul, and the other says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So even that type of thing, I'm, you know, this, this type of allegiance to and loyalty to human leaders is to be repudiated. Furthermore, the cult personality, I'll call it, of towards certain famous preachers, right, is alive and well as you know as well. Excessive loyalty to certain preachers um, has really come about with the YouTube and social media and technology movement, right, out there. It's oh, I'm I'm a fan of John the McCar- John MacArthur. I never never miss any of his sermons, or I only watch Paul Washer videos. I don't need to actually go to a church and interact with people. Gosh, I don't want to do that. I can just watch a video and, you know, that kind of thing. Or even Doug Wilson, very, very popular. Close everybody else out. He's my guru, right, that I'll listen to. And all of these men are good men. But you see what I'm saying here? It's Christ that we need to be excited about, not following mere human leaders. Another thing that divides is making secondary issues the primary issue, right? We have to be careful of that. Furthermore, there's authoritarian leaders that are in certain churches. And just last week, I heard of an actual Reformed church that told a young man, and it was a, a good seminary that he wanted to go to, you can't go to that seminary. That's overstepping the bounds of leadership. It's wrong. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful that when we don't receive the recognition that we feel we deserve, whether it be in the home, in the church, and in your workplace, that we do not resort and fall into these sins. Secondly, verse 27 and 28, and here we get to 
John's response, and it's glorious. 27 and 28, all success and abilities come from heaven. We see the source of this. Look at what he says. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. John gives a general maxim right here. It's, uh, it's sort of like a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of thing. Um, an aphorism. And so uh, it's extremely broad, but really what he's saying is God's sovereignty stands behind all human claims and abilities that God has given to us. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you have not received it? Instead of complaining about the success of Jesus and his disciples, John's disciples should have rejoiced in the fact that the task and mission of John the Baptist was being fulfilled right before their eyeballs. They should have rejoiced. When it says here that uh, it has been given, that's a perfect passive, which just emphasizes that it, it comes from not our own abilities, but God has given it to us. And it's a perfect tense that whatever abilities we have, it's always from him. D.A. Carson says this in his commentary, deep discontent over God's wise and sovereign disposition of people and things would in the instance betray not only unbelief, but faithfulness. But the worst form of perennial human sin, the, the arrogance that God wants to be God and stands where God stands. That's essentially what you're doing if you're grumbling about that. It's like, well, wait a minute. God's, you, you want to be in the place of God. See, John's disciples had that sense of entitlement, um, as it were, there about as to their ministry. They still wanted to look to John as their human hero, right? And they wanted to look to John, do something about this. And that turned into a lack of contentment. You see, that led to uh, envy and jealousy will lead to a sinful habit of comparing yourself with others and opening up your heart to these sins that will fester there. Oh, we need to have the cry of the psalmist, Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on on that very verse, says that the repetition of the words, not unto us, would seem to indicate a very serious desire to renounce any glory which they might have at any time and have proudly appropriated to themselves. It also sets forth the vehemence of their wish that God would at any cost be there to magnify their own name. So we are to magnify the name of the Lord, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your great name be glory. See, God's stewards are required to be faithful and grateful for even lesser roles. Psalm 84, right? It it says that I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of God than to dwell in tents of wickedness. I'd rather be an usher, a doorman in the house of God than to dwell in any and all these other t- uh, things and, and to be content with it. The great missionary William Carey, <clears throat> as he lay on his deathbed, 
Um, Alexander Duff, one of the longtime, lifelong supporters of his, came and was speaking to a small group of people and speaking of Mr. Carey's great achievements in India and all of that and speaking of Mr. Carey and, and, and was praying and even, oh Lord, have mercy on Mr. Carey and all of this stuff. And finally, Carey himself had to interrupt him and say, look, don't talk so much about Mr. Carey, but Mr. Carey's Savior. And when I'm dead and gone, don't be talking, don't, don't remember my name. Talk about Mr. Carey's Savior. Thomas Manson, the Puritan, says, Other sins are against God's law, but pride is against God's sovereignty. And John 19, we'll get to this eventually, but when Pilate's questioning Jesus, and uh, he said, Do you not speak with me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus opens his mouth then and says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So there you have Christ himself saying this very, the very thing that John the Baptist says here, a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. In verse 28, he goes on, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of them. It's as though John says, I've already told you my purpose and my role. And remember back in chapter 1, after the prologue, where the, the testimony or John the Baptist's popularity is increasing, and so the Jews send a, 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 a detail to go and question him, and he confessed in verse 20, 120, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then they said, well, who are you that, you, that we may give an answer to those that sent us? And he says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet answered. So he reminds the disciples that he's not the Christ, but he's been sent as a forerunner of Christ. Then in verse 29, he, we'll see here, John rejoices over the fulfillment of his calling. And, and in verse 29, it's really sort of a parable. It doesn't really fit with, like, there's no bride, there's no wedding going on here, but he uses this bridegroom terminology, and he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly, notice that language, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. The friend of the bridegroom would be like the best man. We had a wedding two weeks, three weeks ago, um, and Matthew is now left, but um, I don't know where he went. But Matthew, he's, it's kind of like the, the, the friend of the bridegroom is like the best man. But, um, and so what does the best man do? They just kind of stand there, they hold the rings, and then they give the rings at the right time. And then you make a toast to the reception, right? Well, to be the friend of the bridegroom in ancient times, it was almost as though you were the wedding coordinator. It was up to you to make sure everything went smoothly. And remember, there was that, that one year before the actual bridegroom would come on the scene. And, and so there, there's, there's a picture of a waiting for that. 
all that offended John's disciples is the very opposite for John here. He says, I am content to be the friend of the bridegroom and to magnify him. He's worked hard at promoting the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Messiah has come promoting Christ and all that he is doing. He's content that his ministry is diminishing. And he knows that there's an expiration date on his ministry. John the Baptist was not ignorant of those Old Testament passages which speaks of the bride, um, more in the New Testament, the bride of Christ, right? The church and Christ as the bridegroom. But you see that in several places in the Old Testament um, where God's people, the remnant, are spoken of as a bride. Jeremiah 2.2 is one of those. It's as though John is saying that Jesus, the Jesus that he introduced um, to the faithful remnant, he is the king and he is Messiah. But our joy and motivation should be because we are servants of Christ, to magnify Christ. Sadly, some Christian leaders are all about stealing the affection that is properly due to Christ and somehow directing it to themselves. That's wrong, brethren. And the view, their view of the church is that it's their personal possession. Well, my church does this, and my church is that. Or you have what? Uh, you know, Kenneth Copeland Ministries. It's all about Kenneth Copeland, right? Instead of something else. And so these men that make ministries after their last name, I think it's wrong. I don't think it's right. That's the benefit, brethren, of a plurality of elders. One of the distinctives that our church has that the Bible clearly has is that there's a plurality of elders. Well, you see, when, when, when a plurality of elders agree that our mission and our goal is to exalt Christ, it's not about exalting any, uh, any of the individual elders whatsoever. And by God's grace, we've enjoyed that for many years here. The benefit of a plural leadership is that the church isn't about one man. If God should move that man to another area, the, the mission of the church is the same, to exalt Christ. And the ministry continues on. He says, my joy is made full by this. John puts into perspective the very ministry of Christ. He, he's not the bridegroom. He's just the friend of the bridegroom. But it is the bridegroom who is to be given attention to. Magnify the bridegroom, the voice of the bridegroom. The, bride, the bridegroom has come on the scene. See, being a true friend of the bridegroom, John rejoices when he comes on the scene. He's not upset that Jesus is baptizing his disciples more people than what he is. His ultimate joy comes from knowing with satisfaction that his ministry was successful, that he is fulfilled and the charge, as it were, that was given to him. The very thing that prompted envy and jealousy in John's disciples is a waterfall of surpassing joy to John the Baptist. And then he says, he must increase, I must decrease. You can imagine these John's disciples, you know, uh, hearing this, uh, his, John's response. First of all, magnifying the sovereignty of God. Second of all, why are you so dull that you don't remember I'm not the Christ? It's about him, not me. And then the, the, the parable of the bridegroom, and then he says, he must increase, I must decrease. You can imagine these disciples kind of, 
oh gosh, how could we be so dumb, right? <laughs> and, and by the way, remember the word must has been primary in John chapter 3. I want you to think about it. In John 3, 7, Jesus says, you must be born again. It's day in the, in the original. It means it absolutely must take place. And so you have the must of the sinner in 3.7. You must be born again. Secondly, in 3.14, where it says, even, the, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You have, you have here the, the, the must of the Savior. And now you see here that the must of the servant, he must increase. This has to be our passion and our mission as servants of God, no matter where you serve in God's kingdom. It means that it, 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 it's the absolute will of God that he increase and that we diminish. It really pictures the, the preeminence of Christ. As we're told in Colossians 1 and verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. The preeminence of Christ. John embraces this truth with great joy, not as a defeated opponent. John the Baptist realizes that there's a shift, there's a transition that is happening, right? He's, he's sort of the last of the old era. A new era has come, ushering in the new covenant of grace. John the Baptist understands this. It's been said, when the electricity comes on, the candles go out. And John the Baptist was just a, a reflection, just a candle, right? Pointing to the light. You saw that at the very beginning, opening verses, right? In verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, John the Baptist, but he came to testify about the light. And so, electricity has come on. The candles can go out. It's okay that the candles go out. It's, it's, you might say, I have come to announce the way that Christ is coming, and now it's time to get out of the way and let Christ do his ministry. That old era is passing away. Psalm 72, verse 17, His name shall endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines let men bless themselves by him. Let all the nations call him blessed. His name must increase as long as the sun shines. John the Baptist knew that his service to the Lord was temporary. We too should know that whatever God has given us to do, it's very temporary, right? There's an expiration date, if I might use that terminology. Think of uh, Stephen in the book of Acts. Well, we have, um, how long was his ministry? Not very long, right? We have one recorded sermon from Stephen, and God says, that's it. I'm done with, with him. Now, you compare that to John MacArthur that's, I don't know, what is it, 52 years now or something, but over 50 years at one church in a faithful pulpit, right? And so God has different things for each one of us. But we need to understand that the primary mission with these things that he's given us is to what? Magnify Christ. Go home and read Acts 7 and read how Stephen, he gives not only the, the past history, but he magnifies Christ. And God says, that's fine. He's, he's fulfilled his calling. He's a faithful servant unto the end before he was stoned to death. 
We have temporary ministries. And actually, we'll see next time in the new year, actually, uh, verses 31 to 36, that, that the rest of the chapter, John speaks of the loyalty to Christ and the royalty of Christ. He doesn't close, he continues talking, uh, as it were, after verse 30, but we're going to have to save that for another time. There's no way we'd fit that in. So, a couple concluding applications. Will you magnify Christ? Will you do that with me? Will, will you make that your mission in this life, is to magnify Christ and to make little of you? An old preacher by the name of Vance Harvner uh, tells a story of a little church in the country that his mother uh, not his mother, <laughs> that a mother and a young child had come to. And, and, and about the third week, the little boy says, who's that guy that keeps getting in front in the way of Jesus? You see, right back here was a picture of Jesus, but every time the preacher would get up, he'd block the view. And so the kid asked a little legitimate question, who's the guy that keeps getting in the, the way of my view to Jesus? Now, you know me, I'm not, all for, I'm not for images at all, but you get the point of the story. And some men, when they climb into the pulpit, they want to make it all about them. I was visiting somewhere once, and I think I counted nine times where a particular preacher made reference to himself on his jog with the neighbor. And I'm not just talking about, a, a, I mentioned my granddaughter being born yesterday. How long did that take? About five seconds. I'm talking about like, five, some of these are like five minute stories, right? And the whole thing's just stories. Give me scripture. Give me the word. Give me thus saith the Lord. That's what we need. Said pastors have an obligation to make very little of themselves in the point to Christ that they would remember the message and not the messenger. I don't remember the guy's name, but he, he preached Christ, right? I read this week that a group of American Christians were visiting London in the 19th century. This is at the peak of Spurgeon's ministry, Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, and also Joseph Parker, whom you may have heard of. And, and their friends here in the U.S. recommended that they would visit Joseph Parker's church and Charles Spurgeon's church. Well, they went in the morning to Joseph Parker's church, and they left, and they said, I do declare Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher there ever was. That night, they went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Charles Spurgeon ministers, listened to his sermon, and they left, and they said, I do declare that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior there ever was. Spurgeon preached Christ. He preached Christ in such a way that, as it were, you, you'd salvate, you know, just, you just want to know him, you want to reach out to him. Oh man, I commend Charles Spurgeon's sermons to you. Secondly, beware of pride. Make it your practice to, to uh, magnify Christ. Remember we read in Romans um, 12.3, and I appreciated Aaron gave prominence to this verse and the way he read it. For for though the grace given to me, for through the grace given to me, I say that everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, for God is allotted to each a measure of faith. That sound judgment means sober-minded. It, it sort of means that if you don't have that, then you're, you should belong in a mental institution or something. You, you're not thinking right at all. We need to work on these things in our homes, in our workplace. John Blanchard said, Pride is the oldest sin in the universe. 
and shows no signs of growing weaker with age. Right? Oldest son in the universe. Satan, Lucifer, right? Uh, before the Lord, before even the creation of man, and it's, and it's a problem. We need to stop worrying about what others think about you and seek to magnify Christ. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I hope that I've said something about Christ. He's the one that said you must be born again. We're all sinners. We're sinners by nature and practice. And, and Christ has come to die for sinners. And, and, and it's a free offer. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you remember that third element of faith. It's a, it's a wholehearted trust and confidence and a clinging to Christ. But you have to confess your sins and turn from them and look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word even this day. Lord, I do pray if there be any here that do not know you that today would be the day of salvation. We long to see people saved and we long to see people walk in, or dip into the waters of baptism and obedience to you. And so Lord, we pray that you would move by your spirit to achieve such things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.